Welcome to the Air Control and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions any of our guests. Today, we have a special episode for you today on new thoughts on shoulder instability. We've indicted Dr. Philip Maroder, who is currently in Zurich, Switzerland at the Schultes Clinic. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to join this podcast. Well, I'm, I'm really excited you were able to join me here. Um, we've had some discussions in the past about glenohumeral instability on the podcast, and you're really an expert and you've made some big contributions. And I want to take a more deep dive with you on some of the more modern details. So first, I, mean, I, I, I think when we talk about instability, increasingly we talk about bone loss. How are you currently measuring glenohumeral bone loss? So, Peter, to be honest, a couple of years ago, um, I love to use the circle, best fit circle method to determine my uh, glenoid bone loss um, quantitatively. And I measured the surface that was missing in respect to the best fit circle area. So this is based on the Sugaya best fit circle technique. And uh, in Europe, we like to cite uh, uh, Baudi, who published the so-called PICO method, which is essentially the technique that I just explained uh, as the time progressed and uh, as we did some research in this field, I realized that uh, a mere 2D measurement, which essentially the PICO method is, it's based on a 3D image, but it's a 2D measurement as it's only measuring surface areas. I realized that this might not be the right surrogate parameter to determine the actual effect of glenoid bone loss on biomechanical loss of stability if you are missing the anterior glenoid wall. We realized that it's more about the glenoid concavity, meaning that um, if you have a concavity that you lose, then you lose stability. And what we saw is in some finite element analysis that if you take away just one millimeter of this concavity and uh, the glenoid then gets flatter, obviously, you lose a lot of stability, meaning that glenoid bone loss does not behave linearly. The first millimeter accounts for the most pronounced loss of stability and then the second millimeter has a, a lesser effect and the third millimeter an even lesser effect meaning that nowadays i like to include the glenoid concavity so the third dimension into my considerations of what is a critical glenoid bonus and finally what i also like to do is think about the pre-morbid shape of the glenoid concavity because what we saw is if you take away one millimeter of the concavity of, um, of a patient that had a very concave glenoid, he's going to lose more stability than a patient that started off with a flatter concavity in the premorbid state. So this is some considerations that I believe are going to be important in the future, kind of difficult to measure in the clinical daily practice, but hopefully with the help of software, we will be able to, to master this task. So does that, when, when, you, when you actually think about that in clinic, when you're faced with a patient, you're in the room, you're looking at the CT scan, does that alter your number at which you say we need to add a graft? Like you say, well, you have a flatter glenoid on the other side, and therefore we can tolerate 17% bone loss, or you have a more curved glenoid on the other side, and therefore we can only tolerate 11% bone loss. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes, you're understanding that correctly. So I'm uh, very much considering the concavity. And if I see that there is a lot of concavity loss, and I actually do 
quantitatively measure this uh, with the help of uh, prototype software. Uh, then I like to go for a bone graft augmentation of the glenoid or reconstruction of the glenoid more more early or earlier than I used to because we all know the discussion. It used to be 20% is a critical bone loss, then it went down to uh, around 13%. There's some nice works uh, from the, from JT Tokish and his colleagues that has been published that showed this very nicely in an active population. Uh, I think that if we can add the third dimension into the discussion and that even on a patient-specific basis, we could maybe even uh, be a little bit more precise in selecting our patients uh, that require a bone graft augmentation instead of a soft tissue repair. Okay, now let's talk about if you're going to do a bone graft, what is your preferred graft now? I mean, I know you've done some work in this area. So um, I actually, my, my go-to guy basically for glenoid reconstruction, bony glenoid reconstruction is still the, the J-bone graft technique. This is a nowadays almost old technique that has been invented uh, in uh, around 1987. Uh, it is an impaction iliac crest bicortical graft, uh, which is fixed only by press fit insertion of a J-shaped uh, bicortical iliac crest graft. Uh, I like it very much because it's metal-free uh, and it doesn't burn any bridges. You can insert it via subscapillary split, split and uh, in the rare cases you need to revise it. Uh, it's very easy to do so. Um, in some selected cases, I still opt for the Latagé, uh, where this is, would be, for example, a patient with uh, a small or moderate glenoid bone loss, failed prior banquet repair, and highly active athlete, like, for example, a hockey player. This would be my hand and indication for Latagé, because I believe that the Latagé shows less uh, bone remodeling and resorption than a free bone graft does, because it has the conjoint tendon attached to the inferior pole. And uh, we are also um, studying new uh, techniques or doing a study with a new technique, which is a uh, spina scapula graft that we use for moderate bone loss uh, to reconstruct uh, the glenoid. And this has also worked quite nicely uh, arthroscopically for us. But the, the J graft is something you cannot do arthroscopically. You're doing those open. There's actually a couple of colleagues of mine who do it arthroscopically in Vienna. Uh, I've not done so uh, yet. Um, I think it's the, the angle is quite difficult to obtain because obviously you need to find a good angle to the glenoid surface. Uh, so I've only done it open. Um, but it is possible and it has been it has been published. And then, you know, your randomized clinical trial shows no difference between this technique, this J-graft, you know, and the latter J. And I think that a lot of people's takeaway from that has been that the sling effect is not important. Tell us about that. Do you think the sling effect plays a role or no? So if we consider the cohort that we randomized in that trial, it was only patients with a quite large glenoid defect. So a good indication for bone reconstruction of the glenoid. In these cases, it seems that the sling effect is not necessary, that a free bone graft can recreate stability the same way as the Latashe does. However, uh, I believe there is a, there's a reason to use a Latashe in a patient where you have a moderate bone loss, where maybe a bunker repair has already failed prior uh, to that surgery, and uh, maybe it's a high-level athlete, because in these cases, 
you will not only need to reconstruct the glenoid uh, with, the, with the bone graft, because this bone graft is going to resorb a lot. Uh, Giovanni Di Giacomo showed this for the, for the Latage, and we showed this for the free bone grafts, that if you augment the glenoid to a, to a, more, more, to a larger extent than there was previously, you will have a very large bone resorption, because the glenoid bone res remodels to a pre-morbid state. Meaning if you augment the glenoid instead of reconstructing it, you will see more resorption. But what uh, Giovanni Di Giacomo saw is that actually the inferior part of the latage tends to stay in an augmented way because there is a pull from the conjunct tendon, which might uh, prevent it from resorbing, as would the free bone grafts do. So I think there is some indications where latage is beneficial over the free bone graft. And are, when you're doing your latages, are you doing them open or arthroscopic? I have to admit, I still do them openly and I'm quite happy to do so. Um, I've been trying the free bone grafts uh, arthroscopically. I think it, there is value there. You can insert this via a rotator interval uh, opening without harming the subscapularis. You can insert this uh, metal-free with, uh, with uh, saclages, fibrosaclages. Mm -hmm. And so I see an added value there. I'm uh, a little bit reluctant to do this uh, arthroscopically as there is a steep learning curve. And um, sometimes we see some, uh, some um, severe adverse events uh, after such interventions. Obviously, in the, in the skilled surgeon, it, this is a, a very uh, viable option. I'm doing them open as well. I think there's no shame in that. Um, certainly, it's the tried and true. So I just want to, I wanted to back up here for a second. So you have right now in your own patient population, you have two populations. You have open ladder J's and you have open J graphs and you've compared them in this study. When you're doing your J graphs, are you doing anything with the straps or with the pectoralis minor, or are you leaving those structures as much as possible unharmed? So uh, could you repeat the first structure that you mentioned? I couldn't understand it. Sorry, the pectoralis minor and then the, the, the strap tendon, the coracobrachialis and the short head of the biceps tendons. Oh, okay. Sorry, I didn't know the term in English. <laughs> Apologize for that. So uh, for, with the conjoint tendon, we don't do anything. We just move it to the side. This can quite nicely be done. Uh, and with the pectoralis major, uh, minor, we leave it in, in peace. If we do a J-bone graft, obviously. If you do a latage, then actually you have this detachment of the pect minor. And um, my, my colleague, Stefano Corbone, who unfortunately is not uh, with us anymore, as he passed away early, he actually showed this in a, in a nice study where he showed that if you do a latage, you have more cases of scapular dyskinesis uh, postoperatively compared to a free bone graft transfer. Did not have a clinical impact in terms of outcomes course, but there was a higher rate of uh, postoperative scapular dyskinesis. This is a quite interesting finding. Interesting. So you think that, have you noticed that in your own patients that you feel like there is more abnormal scapular movement when you release the pectoralis minor and move the straps? Sorry, yeah, it's a great question. If, um, so I'm, I've been very happy with my Latage outcomes, to tell you the truth. So I'm not against Latage at all. What I do sometimes realize is they have more scapular dyskinesis, yes, but this usually can be trained. And so you can you can work against that quite nicely. And what I can see, and we also saw this in our randomized trial, is that if you do a belly press test, 
and they had a couple of patients where I had a free bone graft on one side and a latage on the other side. And actually, uh, what you can see is some weakness and some limitation of uh, rotation, especially internal rotation. And if you have to revise a latage, the, for example, for screw removal, you can do this arthroscopically. Uh, what you can see is that the subscapularis tendon does not look uh, as nice as uh, as it looks after a mere subscap splitting for a free bone graft, because obviously with the latage you have a permanent split of the subscapularis. This does not seem to have a relevant clinical effect, so the patients are not bothered by this, but this is something that you can observe during revision surgery, for example. Um, and there is, uh, I'm sure, Peter, you have observed this as well, there is a few, very few cases that may be referred to you or that you see that have a subscapularis insufficiency of the latage in a young patient. And these are catastrophes where we really don't have a good solution for them. No, I, I agree. I've seen that. That's a very, very difficult patient. Um, I think that the interesting thing to me, too, has been there's been some argument that that part of the way the latage works is by that tensioning of the lower subscapularis. It sounds like your feeling has not been that that's an important aspect in your own patients. Um, only, in my opinion, only in those patients uh, that I mentioned, failed prior bank cut, moderate bone loss, high-level effort. There I feel that the sling effect can be uh, of uh, great value. And what I also like, with the, at least with the open latage technique, you can have a very nice reconstruction of the capsule. If you if you maintain the corcoacromial uh, ligament, then actually you can suture this nicely if you did a vertical incision of your capsule. So you can attach the cull with the lateral aspect of the of the capsule, and uh, this intuitively can look quite nice. With um, with for example the J-bone graft technique. It's a little bit more difficult uh, to get the capsule that I split typically horizontally wrapped around the obviously quite large uh, graft. How are, and how are you handling that? Are you trying to just close the capsule primarily when you do that J-graft? Or are you putting in anchors on the glenoid at the same time? So what I like to do is uh, do a transosseous reinsertion of the inferior aspect of the capsule label complex to the graft. Superly, I mostly leave it in place and then I do a side-to-side -side, uh, closure of the subscap split. Uh, my former boss, uh, Herbert Resch, who taught me this technique, uh, he, at, after certain, let's say after, after many years of doing this, he completely stopped doing anything to the capsule or to the labrum at all. And he just inserted the graft and then did a side-to-side -side, uh, closure of the subscapularis and maybe of the capsule. This was his uh, experience, and he obviously has a, a ton of experience, and it worked quite nicely in his hands. Now, I know you guys have been doing these these um, these techniques for some time now. I'm sure you've done them for long enough that you've seen some of these patients progress to instability arthropathy. What has been your experience later on with, if you have to go back and do an arthroplasty, the difference between the post-Latterge or the post-free bone block kind of patient? So if you go back, obviously we observe instability atropathy with whatever technique you use. There's really no way, in my opinion, to stop this uh, progression, unfortunately, in these uh, young uh, patients. Um, what I've seen when revising a J-bone graft is also on the CT scans. The, the, the J-bone graft offers you the nicest follow-up CT scans I've ever seen out of every technique. It's metal-free. 
and it looks very anatomically remodeled. Sometimes you can barely see that there was ever any injury to the glenoid and you can barely see the graft contours. So this looks very nice and also the subscapularis is, uh, looks very nice because it was just a temporary horizontal split. So I have really no, no problems in revising this, um, this um, J-bone graft. With the Latage, it's a little bit different. Obviously, there's a change in anatomy. You don't have the coracoid and um, the conjoint tendon as guidance um, for, your, for your access to the joint. And you have more scarring in the area of the permanent split and the transferred conjoint tendons through the subscap subscapularis. It's obviously possible. It's been done many times. Uh, but obviously, uh, it's a bigger challenge. And I would be a little bit more worried about the subscapularis after Latage than after free bone graft transfer, which obviously is, uh, is uh, something to consider when doing anatomic latroplasty. Certainly, I think that's um, been my concern with the Latage, the post-Latage instability arthropathy patient. Revising that to an anatomic, is the subscapularis going to function properly or will there be excess translation or early loosening? Certainly, there's some evidence of that in the literature. Have, 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 has that been your experience? or do you, my, my inclination often with those patients has been to say, maybe we should just consider doing a reverse to begin with. So for me, uh, obviously, mostly these are unfortunately young patients. So I try to go for anatomic. Uh, if the subscap tendon and muscle quality is still there, and uh, if I feel like there is a static decentering or dynamic instability of the center of rotation, then uh, I have no other choice than going for, for reverse. Obviously, the older the patients are, the, the easier this decision is for me then. Now, tell us, with the J-bone graft, you're, are you ever combining that with a remplissage? And when would you do that? When do you do that kind of combined humeral and glenoid approach? So it's quite interesting to see if you uh, if you augment the glenoid, then you turn some uh, off-track lesions into on-track lesions, or most of them actually. We showed this in our trial as well. Um, however, there is a few patients where actually you have huge uh, hill sucks defects and huge glenoid bone loss. This is, in my experience, typically the seizure patients uh, suffering from epilepsy, for example. And uh, in these cases, however, I did not do a combination with, um, with a remplissage. I rather do a J-bone graft uh, combined with a, with a fresh frozen allograft for reconstructing the humeral head. Um, and I insert this with resorbable screws so that uh, in the end, I will have no metal in these patients that sometimes uh, have no way of getting neurological control of the seizure disorder. Uh, obviously, seizure disorder uh, is a neurological problem first, and then you need to take care of that. But in some patients, they are just not possible. And then you have these young 20-year-old patients that just need some help in order to get, away, uh, get on with their lives and have a, a functional shoulder. And so you have no other choice. And then I opt to go uh, metal-free and reconstructing both. In very rare cases, I do need to combine a rompissage with uh, with a glenoid augmentation procedure as the Latache or the, or the J-bone graft. And are you making that decision before surgery based upon the expected thickness of your J-bone graft? How do you, that's, because I've struggled to know when do you do that, you know, or is it more of a, you look at it and you say, oh, clearly this is a very, very large hill sacs. We will have to address this. So I decide this uh, preoperatively as I mainly do uh, open reconstruction of the glenoid. 
Uh, so I kind of want to know before whether I want to go for an additional intervention on the back of the humeral head. If I go for arthroscopic uh, bone grafting technique or for bone cut repair, then I like to judge this intraoperatively and see whether there's an engagement or not prior to the to the anterior capsular labral repair or anterior bone grafting. And then I'll go quite frequently for a combination of a of a glenoid-sided anterior procedure and a remplissage. I think there is some nice data out there from Peter McDonald and colleagues and others who have shown in randomized trials that uh, the remplissage is indeed something that um, that is uh, worthwhile doing in, in these patients that have uh, an off-track lesion. However, in these seizure disorder patients where the defect is very deep and very far into the joint, I believe if you do a remplissage, you just cover too much of the surface. And there I go for allograft augmentation of the head to uh, rebuild the convexity of the head. But this is very rare cases. In most cases, I go for a remplissage or nothing. That's great. Now, I want to talk about the, there's another thing you've done recently that I think is, it's still, we're still coming to learn about it in the U.S., but maybe has seen more penetrance in uh, Europe. And there's, there's done a bunch of work with kind of neuromuscular, this kind of functional instability patient population. You've done some work to understand this population. And now you've pioneered this new device, the, the shoulder pacemaker, um, which is uh, very recently in the U.S. been realigned Neuraline S. So tell me, tell me the work you did to understand this patient population, and then what gave you the idea to develop this device? So, you know, Peter, I, I often struggled in treating patients came to my office where I did not see any structural defect on MRI, but nonetheless, these patients had the most severe types of instability that I've ever seen. They dislocated the shoulder in front of me every time they raised the arm. So this was always uh, frightening and amazing to me at the same time. Because I thought, what, what is going on there if a patient without any visible structural defects has the worst instability uh, I've, I've experienced? And uh, I've seen uh, these patients being operated a lot with sometimes great but sometimes catastrophic outcome. And so I thought, well, maybe as every time in shoulder instability surgery, we try to to take away the cause. We try to handle the cause. So if you have a glenoid bone loss anteriorly, we do some glenoid augmentation. If you have a heel sacs, we might go for a remplissage. So I thought, well, if we have this issue with uh, muscle activation pattern in this, what I like to call functional shoulder instability patient, as opposed to structural shoulder instability patients, maybe we should address the, the muscle patterning aspect and uh, there's been some studies out there that showed that patients with a functional posterior shoulder instability have actually a hypoactivity of their external rotators and scapular retractors and so what we did is we built a device that uh, is motion triggered so it's a, a nmes device that captures the motion of the patient and stimulates according to the motion best pattern of the patients in order to induce uh, what we believe neuroplasticity effect to retrain the motion pattern. Uh, there's been a nice study in the, in the UK that has shown that in these patients with functional instability, uh, you can see on functional brain MRI scans that it looks like, uh, like a child that's trying to learn a new motor pattern. So the patients are trying, but they don't know how to do it. And the device is able to guide them in, in the right directions. And we have 
had quite nice results and I'm glad uh, this device is now also available in the US and I've had some good feedback from the US as well. So I'm excited obviously about that as well. And so this, the device, it both senses electrical activity and then stimulates. Is it, is there, what is the feedback you've gotten from patients about that? Is that an unpleasant experience for patients? So actually it senses motion and then stimulates. So it doesn't uh, gather any electrical stimulation. It just uh, senses motion. And uh, I've quite honestly, I've had a few uh, outcomes and also I believe a colleague of mine has shown this at the, the ASES meeting. There is some patients who profit immediately. So this is quite astonishing for the treating surgeon or physiotherapist and also for the patient themselves. And in other patients, you have the effect over several weeks and months of training. And uh, usually the patients, especially if they are young and athletes, they like it because they like to feel their muscles uh, being activated. But obviously, you will also have a few patients to say, oh, I, li I don't like this being uh, remotely guided in, in my muscle activation pattern. There's a few patients who might be frightened, frightened about this, but especially athletes like it a lot. And we are trying to expand it into the, into the athlete uh, group. Uh, there's, for example, um, colleagues of mine in the US uh, who build protocols for prehabilitation for baseball and uh, some uh, prehabilitation for tennis players uh, or rotator cuff rehabilitation positively and so on. So we're trying to expand this concept uh, in the future. Well, certainly it's um, an exciting approach. I mean, as you mentioned, there's the shoulders so dependent upon the surrounding muscular forces and the muscles to fire in a coordinated fashion. And that can be so difficult when it's working abnormally for patients to fix on their own. I think we've all seen those patients in clinic that have been to therapy, they've tried and it's just hard. So it's it's uh, great to have a new new device or a new solution or a new approach, at least to understand that. And I Is there anything people, else? You know uh, sorry for interrupting you. What I wanted to mention, uh, you guys in Utah, you, you do a, an excellent job in involving the scapulothoracic uh, articulation, or I'm not quite sure if you call it articulation in English, but you know what I'm, I'm meaning. Um, I think you do an excellent job in, in including this aspect of the shoulder as well, because it basically it's the, it's the basis for the shoulder is the scapula and the scapula uh, scapulothoracic orientation and scapulothoracic motion patterns. And I think in the past, this is a poorly understood uh, subject and we need to work on this. And especially in these patients with functional shoulder instability, scapular setting is highly important. And this is something that, uh, in my opinion, up until now, is best treated with uh, a muscular intervention, a functional muscular intervention. Well, we're certainly trying here in Utah. And I think that's, I think a lot, a lot of what, one of the one of the things that draws people to shoulder surgery is this this aspect of it. There's kind of a mystery around the not only the muscles but also the position of the scapula, and it's so difficult to understand and measure. And it's um, but as you mentioned, foundational to everything else. Anything else you'd like to share with us that you're working on an instability or in the shoulder that we um, we could benefit from here? Our listeners can benefit from hearing. Oh, I uh, appreciate the question, but I think that's uh, that's about it. But uh, hopefully we will be able to continue in the future uh, to build uh, on, on these, uh, these projects that we have been doing. I think that the future will bring us in the direction where we use more software to do a preoperative analysis of our patient 
the, the effect of glenoid bone loss and also humeral bone loss in a little bit more reliable way. Because during a, a meeting a couple of uh, months ago, I asked uh, the audience who believes in the glenoid track concept. And there was like 200 hands going up out of maybe 250. And uh, then I asked, and who actually measures this preoperatively in the daily routine? And there was only very few hands going up. And so I can completely understand my colleagues there. It's uh, quite difficult. We, we have made big strides in, in science in what seems to be a mechanical issue and whatnot. But we need to do a better job in transferring this to our daily clinical practice to make it more available to, to every surgeon uh, in daily routine. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that's that well, while I think we all agree it's conceptually true, it's it's actually very challenging to measure. I mean, you almost need two, you almost need a, a merge CT and MRI because you need to know where the cuff attaches, but also where very precisely the bone comes out of round and into dent, so to speak. Correct. Uh, what yeah. we try to do in a project that we are about to submit for review is uh, we try to use the Glenet track concepts, which are very much uh, like coming from AGE Toy, uh, Giovanni Di Giacomo and, and others. So it's a great concept, I believe. What we try to do is to reference our hill sucks position to the apex of the humeral head, to the, to the not the apex, but the center of the humeral head if you do an anatomical cut. Um, I think this would be a more reliable uh, bony landmark, even though there is no um, tuberosity or anything like that. But with the software, you can actually determine this spot quite easily. This would be a more reliable landmark than maybe a rotator cuff insertion would be on a CT scan where you cannot really see where, this, where the rotator cuff is. And you have a harder time guessing how much will the glenoid be able to to drive into the rotator cuff. Uh, so if you have a more flexible uh, young girl, then obviously a heel sucks defect might become more critical as she will be able to overlap this defect more easily with the glenoid than in a, in a very stiff, uh, uh, more stiff uh, patient. Yeah, I th I, that's, that's so interesting you guys are doing that. That's, I think that's one piece of it. The other piece of it, as you mentioned, is understanding the patient's native native flexibility. I think there's also going to be an aspect of the shape of the scapula, which will allow the humerus to move in certain ways and not in others. Um, and that's going to be understanding the first thing we started with, which is you have to also understand, you know, the way in which the scapula is moving. And that part is going to be hard. I think if we're, we're probably going to get close enough with the first part you mentioned and also adding in 3D, as you mentioned. And you know what I wish, uh, Peter? So I, I really hope that uh, my US friends uh, will be able to build some kind of device or some kind of, uh, I don't know, glue that you can apply to this heel sucks defect to just build, rebuild the convexity of the humeral head. That will be a great thing. So if somebody has any, any thoughts on that or any technological advantages, please let me know. That will be such a cool invention. <laughs> well, we'll keep working on it. Um, I, I think this is about all the time we have for our podcast. I want to thank you so much for coming on. We've learned a ton from you here in the U S and I'm um, appreciative for all of your research. And I really appreciate you coming on to share some of your experience. I think many of our listeners will find this stimulating as they think about how to approach bone loss, how to approach glenohumeral instability. So for all of our shoulder noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe and we will see you next time. Thank you very much, Peter. 
has been a great time discussing with you this topic and I'm looking forward to meet you guys in the US in the future.